0: Welcome to the One City Church Podcast. Our mission is to help people draw closer to God by practicing the way of Jesus. We hope that your time with us blesses you and that you're able to see the invitations of Jesus to experience the love that he has for you. Talking to uh, the guys who um, were able to show up this morning today, earlier today to to help me, um, that today, We are celebrating six months since we last opened. And it is, yes, yes, we praise God for that. It has been quite the journey. It felt like, I was telling him, man, it's six months, but it has felt like six years. Um, But it's a blessing that I'm I'm just, I wouldn't take back. And I'm just super excited for our church family and where God has this going next. Um, So about 20% of the population in the US struggles with some sort of consistent fear or phobia. Here are just a few examples of what people are more commonly afraid of. Dark places, some spiders, flying in airplanes, riding in elevators, or being in tightly enclosed rooms, or even public speaking. For some, these fears and phobias might seem childish. But for those who suffer from these fears, they can be debilitating. Sometimes these phobias or fears stem from some traumatic event from the past. Or they can also be learned or passed down genetically. For me, heights have always been something that just causes me fear and anxiety. I'm not sure where this stems from. But the fear of heights is something that just puts my stomach into knots. For one, I don't ride roller coasters. If I'm in an amusement park, for whatever reason, you'll probably find me on the other side of the, of the ride, at the end of the ride, taking care of everyone's belongings. Purses, strollers, you name it, there's no shame in that. Several years ago, Liliana and I took a trip to Europe. We were in Paris, how romantic, right? And we decided to go up the Eiffel Tower. Now we had two options, you can take the elevator up or you can take the stairs. Because of my fear of heights, and mainly because I was being cheap, we took the stairs because it was free. And also I thought, man, I can actually control the situation because I can control my steps. About 10 minutes into the climb, I froze. I couldn't move one foot in front of the other. My fear of heights completely paralyzed me. By this time, Liliana and I had been married for about five years, And she couldn't believe that my fear had literally frozen me. After some laughs, mainly her laughing uncontrollably, we made it to the top and all I could do was just sit down and just try to catch my breath. We took a few pictures and then we decided to just kind of descend and make our way down. After we walked down, we began to uh, walk back to the hotel and she said, you know, For the longest time, I always thought that you were just messing around about your fear of heights. But seeing you like that finally made me realize that there might be something to what you're saying. Most of our fears stem from a lie that has been deeply engraved in all of us. This fear leads us to live paralyzed lives. In the first three chapters of Genesis, we read how God created the heavens and the earth. All of creation reflects God's grace, and he blesses Adam, and he says to him to enjoy all that has been created. God's grace is clear from the beginning, as God saw all that he had made, and he said it was very good. Shortly after, sin enters the world. Sin begins to just kind of create a disruption between us and God. This disruption is a distancing in our relationship with Jesus. What sin created deep down inside the heart of every man and every woman is a mistrust, a mistrust in the goodness of God. See, God's creation and everything in it is a reflection of his generosity towards humanity. This is a part of God's grace for us here on earth. But the devil uses schemes to create a disruption. The devil tries to put a distance between us and God by advancing the lie that God's goodness is just simply not enough. So we start to believe it, that God's goodness is not enough. We start to question God's goodness, which leads us to live our lives in fear and anxiety. Oftentimes, it manifests itself into living a life of scarcity. Now, scarcity is something that affects all of us from one time to another. The fear of not having enough is a play on our natural need for security. This, this doubt of God's goodness is not, not being enough. is actually one of the biggest challenges that we face as followers of Jesus. This can often show itself when it, comes, when, we come, uh, when it comes to finding security in our relationships, but more specifically when it comes to our romantic relationships and celibacy or waiting to be physically intimate to a marriage. We are challenged in trusting God's goodness when it comes to our jobs. And we slave away in our work because we try to find a sense of security in what we do. But for most followers of Jesus, the mistrust of God's goodness really comes to light when it comes to our finances. Our salaries are the byproduct of our work. What we earn is a way of measuring our worth. The value of our time is measured by the wigs that we earn. So naturally, money or what we make becomes a way that defies our value, defines our value as a person. But unknowingly, it's creating an attachment to what we earn. It's almost like our wealth and what we make lures us to believe that that is the goodness of God. And we oftentimes take for granted and miss out on the one who is the giver of all and the invitation to live with him and enjoy his goodness. Now let's try something. When I say the word tithe, what comes to mind? 80%. 10%? Okay. Money? Okay. Okay. I think it's safe to say that deep down, there's a a little bit of a mix mix of emotions. Some are like, that's a given, 10%. Who doesn't tithe? We're supposed to. Others of you might be like, oh, here's another church after my money. Or some of you might be like, man, I want to, but I just can't because I don't have enough. Or everything in between. But what's curious, what does Jesus have to say about this? Before we get into that, we need to just take a look at the Old Testament and see where the history of the word tithing comes from. The word tithe can be traced as early as in Genesis chapter 14, after Abraham had defeated the armies that waged war against the king of Sodom, and he he went out to rescue his nephew Lot. A priest comes out. And if you have your Bibles in front of you, we're going to read this. A priest comes out, and he says, after Abraham returned from defeating um, the kings that were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the Shaveh Valley. The priest brought out bread and wine. He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God the Most High creator of the heaven and earth. And blessed be God, the Most High, who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abraham gave a tenth of everything. That's interesting. Abraham gave a tenth of everything. In the early days, the spoils of war were men, women, children, crops, and land everything and anything that they could get their hands on. What's astonishing is that Abraham, Abraham's response to God's blessing on his mission to save Lot was to, give God back, was to give back to God through the priest a portion of the winnings. It's just something that kind of came natural to him. Abraham's response, therefore, was an act of worship. This response came from his deep understanding that without God, nothing he did could be accomplished. And two, well, when here's why, because the odds were never in Abram's favor when he went to war, when he went to go uh, rescue his nephew Lot. He had 318 men with him against the armies of the kings of the land. The second thing is that Abram knew intuitively that God was with him. So listen to the next verse. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people, but take the possessions for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of the heaven and the earth, and I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that belongs to you, so that you can never say, I made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what my servants have eaten. But as for the share of the men who came with me, they can take their share. Abram's strength to let go of everything and trust in God is powerful. Abram is only worried about his people and nothing else. His blessing comes from the Lord God Most High, the creator of the heaven and the earth. A few chapters back, if you recall, if you're not familiar with Abram's story, He had had an encounter with God, and God blessed him. Now, God's plan hadn't come into fruition yet. uh, Abram's son wasn't born yet. God's blessing to Abram was he himself, that he was with him. God's goodness was shown in his kindness to Abram, that he met him and was with him. That was the blessing. Now, let's fast forward a little bit to Deuteronomy which, if you don't know this, it's one of the five books that consists of the Torah, like the Jewish Bible. But in Deuteronomy, we see a tenth now being set aside for the Lord. But I think it's important to know that the word Deuteronomy comes from two Greek words. One is um, deutero, which means second, and the other one is nomos, which means law. The word Deuteronomy means the second law. If you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament, it's important to remember that Moses... Had freed the people from slavery, God had spoken to him and given him ten commandments. Now the people of Israel were—they rebelled against God. Remember, like they worshipped the golden calf. So before they could enter the promised land, that whole generation had to had to had to, be, um, had to die off. So the book of the Deuteronomy is actually comes like a like a teaching. Of Moses, it was recited like verbally, and that's why it was um, it was known as like the like almost like a like a second um, like a second um, guidance guidance for the for the Israelites so that they wouldn't make those mistakes again. But still, um, in total, this this was fascinating. In total, there were no longer ten commandments. Now, because of what they had done, now there's 613 commandments in the book of Deuteronomy. These commandments don't get a lot of love because we view them as restrictions, rules and regulations, but in actuality, they were far more gentle. They were guidelines for the people of Israel, guidelines for them to live as people of God, guidelines that would help them not stray away like their ancestors had done previously. So in chapter 14 in Deuteronomy, we read about certain guidelines pertaining to food, what food was deemed clean, what food was deemed unclean. And then shortly after, we read how each year you are to set aside a tenth of all produce grown in your fields. Then you are to eat the tenth of your grain, new wine and fresh oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to have his name dwell, so that you will always learn to fear the Lord. Now, let me explain this. The people of Israel were not just instructed to give a tenth of their harvest of their animals and take them to the temple where God's presence resided. They were there to take their best 10% and eat in the temple with God and community. Now, this wasn't an act just to Leave things and go, it was an invitation to engage with God, therefore becoming an act of worship. Which means that to fear the Lord meant more like a reverence. And by reverence, it meant more like to come to an understanding and, and give God almost respect and acknowledgement of who he is and what he has done in our lives. Several verses later, it's a guideline that if the temple is too far to carry your offering and sell it, you can sell your stuff locally and then take that money to the temple. And here's what's fascinating. This stuff's in the Bible. I'm not kidding. He says, you may spend the silver on anything you want, cattle, sheep, goats, wine, beer, or anything you desire. And you are to feast there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice with your family. What I would like for us to take from this is the image of the joy that's being lived through this offering. This is an image of a celebration, of a feast. But we cannot forget that it's not about the items that are being brought. It's about who they are experiencing this feast with. This is the goodness of God. It's about celebrating. It's about living and enjoying the presence of God. See, the importance of understanding the Old Testament is for us to get a clear and better understanding of, what Jesus, of, of Jesus and why his way continues to be radical to this day. We must be able to look back at human history, our history, in order to understand what Jesus is inviting us to. Because Jesus spoke a lot about money, but interestingly enough, he never used the word tithe. Because more specifically, He was talking about our attachment to the material things that money provides. This often comes to light when he is speaking to to the religious leaders of the time. The religious leaders weren't necessarily bad people. I think they get a bad rap. What they were teaching wasn't bad. But it was their love for the law above their love for God and people that Jesus came to set right. That's what gets misunderstood about them. They love the law more than God and people. The reason why we are, they were so legalistic was because of a small belief that the Israelites wandered in the desert and they were in exile because they did not uphold 10 commandments. They're like, man, if they couldn't do 10, like we're going to do the 613. But I'll show you guys right now how it gets better. So what that meant, what was once meant as gentle guidelines, the commandments now become rules that needed to be followed strictly because the law was a salvation for their people. That's where this, like, um, legalistic mindset came from. Now, here's a fun fact. The Pharisees' redemption depended on the commandments. And because they wanted to end their oppression, they went above and beyond and created rules that served as protection over those rules. This was an oral law called the Mishnah, and it was composed of 1,500 rules on top of the 613 commandments that you find in Deuteronomy. So to say that they were strict, ascetic, um, extremely disciplined, yes, very true. Because in their minds, it carried um, to every facet of their lives, including their spiritual practices. Now imagine Jesus, right? Like this is how they're living, this is how they've been living for centuries, for generations. Now imagine Jesus walking into their lives, being relaxed, eating, drinking, at parties, at wedding uh, wedding celebrations, touching the sick. Healing the broken, sharing a meal with ladies of the night, Jesus was a threat to their way of life and, they, and their long-held concepts of redemption. That's why they were up against Jesus. Jesus had al- has always been about his father's business. We see that ever since he was a little kid, Luke chapter 2 verse 49. And the father's business is for his children to live in his goodness again. See, God's goodness is also known as grace. Grace is a word that can represent God in a lot of ways. Grace is the power that comes from God in all of our lives. His grace is felt and experienced in his presence. This is his original plan. This is what the Garden of Eden represented All that was in the garden was good, and it was a gift of God to us. A gift that represents the goodness of the Father. The goodness of the Father is the manifestation of his presence. The goodness of God is being in his presence with him because it's there where we truly lack nothing. And this is what Jesus was setting straight, that the kingdom of God, the presence of God is accessible, to everyone wherever they are. It's this way of life, the way that Jesus lived, that he referred to as the abundant life. He says, I come so that they may have real and eternal life, more and a better life than they ever dreamed of. See, the abundant life is a life that lacks nothing. But the lack is not of external things. It's a life of wholeness. A life that is full of joy, both in the heart, the body, the mind, and the spirit. Jesus' radical way of living life is from the abundance that comes from living in the presence of God. Where he truly liked nothing. So he introduces us to this radical life. And the byproduct of this life is marked by generosity. That's what Jesus is leading us to. If tithing was a response of God's goodness or His grace for the Israelites of their fear and reverence of God, generosity is now the reflection of God's goodness in the followers of Jesus. Generosity is now an overflow of God's goodness in our lives. The money that we give, our time that we give, is us extending the gift of God's grace to those around us. When we look at Jesus, at Jesus' words and the stories of not worrying about anything, what we eat, what we drink, what we wear, what we learn, we learn a lot. In the story of the rich young ruler, which you find in Matthew 19, Jesus tells him, he says, hey, go and sell all your belongings, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven then follow me. Then Jesus says that it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God of heaven. What Jesus was bringing to light is not the material things that we need to be focusing on but it's people that are the most important. So let's take a look at this a little bit closer in the gospel of Mark uh, chapter 12 verses 41 through 44. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were being put and watched the crowd putting in their money in the temple treasury. Many rich people threw large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more in the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. It's fascinating how Jesus is just sitting there watching people give their offerings. But he notices that there's a difference in the way that people are giving. So he points out that the wealthy are throwing large amounts of money. It's kind of odd. But now this makes sense because the portions that we all give Subjective. In other words, the rich person who has more is more likely to give more compared to someone who has less, therefore gives less. But Jesus goes beyond the exterior and notices that the act of giving is done without heart, is done without joy. That giving has moved from being a moment of celebration to an act of obligation. It's almost like the wealth that they have has made them blind to the one who provides it. It's almost like our our wealth lures us to believe that this is the goodness of God. And we take for granted the one who gives and invites us to live with him and enjoy his goodness. That is the reversal that Jesus is trying to lead us to. Jesus then introduces us to a poor widow who put two two copper coins. To begin, in that time, being poor was a sign that God did not look favorably upon you. Moreover, there was a view that there was some sort of sin attached and that your poverty was actually a punishment for your life. And to be a widow meant that you were damaged goods. Nobody wanted anything to do with you. So this woman represented the bottom of the social scale. She is the contrast to the rich man. So let's listen to what Jesus tells his disciples. He says, the poor widow has put more in all the treasury than all the others. Jesus was flipping the spiritual practice on its head. What he's saying is that God's grace in our lives is not a result of how much we give but it's in the posture. It's the heart in which we give that reflects the goodness of God. I want want that to sink in. God's grace in our lives is not a result of how much we give. But what we give is a reflection of God's goodness in our lives. See, this woman had nothing. The amount merited to a few cents. And let's finish the text. It says, they all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything. All she had to live on. I love the words of R.T. France in his commentary. Where he says, it is the devotion of her heart and the cost to, her, to the giver rather than the amount of money given. It is the devotion of her heart and the cost to the giver rather than the amount given. This woman surely struggled with giving what she had. I guarantee you that there was a wrestling going on. Because in her mind, I'm sure she thought, man, this could go to so many other things. Food, shelter, maybe feed her kids, or cover some critical expenses. But in her struggle, she chose to put her trust in God. It's there in that space where we people here as a community have an opportunity to experience the goodness of God. It's here in that place where we choose to trust God, that we experience his grace and his goodness. This is why generosity is so radical and so countercultural. It simply doesn't make sense to give It just doesn't make sense. It's radical because we move from finding safety and security in earthly things and place that trust in Jesus himself. Getting here to this place, though, is something that takes time. And it stretches us like never before. Generosity is the rhythm of life that comes from living in the presence of God. But this is an invitation into a into living in a way that is unlike anything ever seen before. To live a life in the presence of God is the life that we're destined for a life that is rich and abundant. As a pastor, my role is to steward you and lead you to Jesus for you to see the invitations that Jesus has for you to draw closer to him. You have a unique relationship with money, as do I. We have some similarities, but there's also some differences. But it's in these moments that feel like tension that become opportunities for us to experience him in a different way. I'm aware that some of you might even have some reservations about this topic. And some of you might have even been hurt by the church as a whole, and have put ourselves in there as well, as we've all heard and seen stories of misuse of finances in the church. I don't blame you. Those feelings, those reservations are normal and natural and valid. I can't say that the church in its history has always been above reproach, has always been good stewards of the finances that they've been entrusted with. It's a reality. We live in a broken world with broken humans. But don't let those obstacles hinder you or prevent you from the invitation that Jesus has for you. My hope for you tonight is that you're able to use these roadblocks that you might have as invitations for you to explore with Jesus. For you to learn to trust and for him to help us loosen the grip that money might have on our lives. For us to move towards living in an abundant life that he promises, living in the kingdom of the heavens, enjoying the gifts that God continues to give us. We can't miss that. God is continuously giving us gifts. And our generosity is a reflection of his grace in our lives. It's a reflection of his goodness in our lives. Like I said, we've celebrated um, six months, and I just I'm going to lead with transparency. Me, anybody who helps me in this church, we do not take a salary. We do not take a pay. We don't. Will we someday maybe? The generosity that's been given to this church that continues to be given to this church is to help us continue in our services, to help us continue in our reach because we truly believe in what we're doing. Generosity stretches all of us. We're a one-income family with a little one on the way. The challenges are there, but we're still faithfully choosing to put God first because honestly, he's just been too good to us for us not to give a small portion of what he's given us. We have been faithfully giving even before this church started. Because we, we understand it. We've come personally to appreciate how good God has been and continues to be. Especially in my life and in the life of my wife. My vision for this church when it comes to our generosity, is for it to, like in, like in Deuteronomy, for it to be a form of worshiping God. That our generosity becomes a radical, disruptive way of living for all of us. For us to be like the early church in Acts 4, verse 32, where all the believers were of one heart and one soul, and they felt that all that they had was not their own, so they shared everything for every gathering that we have here on the weekends, for it to be a feast, a coming together of our families uniting as one family of God, worshiping, celebrating, rejoicing in the goodness of our Father. That's what our weekend services are all about. That our generosity doesn't just benefit us as a church family, but that our generosity extends to reach the people in our community. For our generosity to continue to set the table for us as a family, but also for it to extend to those who are looking for a family. We need to have extra seats at the table for them. This is how our generosity becomes a reflection of what God is doing in our lives. It is hard to teach a message on generosity. I'm being honest with you. It it would be far easier for me to sit up here and just make it about tithing. Because generosity, I surrender it as a pastor. Because now it's about you and Jesus. Now it's about you and Jesus. And leading and trusting where the Spirit is leading you. That's hard, my friends. This has been, I'm not joking with you, one of the hardest messages I've had to prepare. And it's taken me six months to prepare for this thing. Because I've had to come to terms with that as well. Say, God, like, where where are you leading me? Where are you leading our church? And he's saying, trust me. Just trust me. (laughs) All right, bro, it might be me. It might be the bad burrito I had earlier today, but let's go. I'm going to trust in it. So what's our practice for the week? Give. Practice being generous. If you feel like this is your church home and this church, what we're doing here, um, is something that you want to get behind and, 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 and help us, um, you can give here in person or you can give online. This is the first time I've ever really talked about it. It's probably the last time I talk about it. But please don't feel pressured to give. I want this to be an act of, 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 of giving, an act of celebration. Giving is an act of worship. It's an act of being thankful and acknowledging God's goodness in our lives. Now, some of us have a hard time with that because the devil can kind of come in and, and, and mess with our minds and be like, okay, I don't have to be upheld by the 10%. I, I'm only going to give 0.5% because you know, you know, there's, there's a little bit of part of us. I have to, we, we have to recognize that. But I think this is where we can use the Old Testament act of tithe as a healthy boundary for us to use sometimes we need guidelines and that's where that old principle can help us because it can kind of just set the bar it can kind of just allow us to just meet there and use it as a spiritual principle and as a guide but not as something that like i have to do it's not an obligation friends for some, you have done this and continue to give out of your generosity, which is great. God bless you. And you are living out the gift of God's presence in your life. And many people are being blessed by that. So We just want to say thank you. Wherever you are in that spectrum, let that be a moment and a place for you to engage Jesus in.